Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we listen to the other side. We talk with people who have believed and embraced atheism as the best explanation for reality, but then changed their minds and came to believe in Christianity. From childhood, our beliefs about God, whether or not He is real, and what God might be like or not like, are often shaped by our family experience. It works both ways. Some families teach their children to believe in God. Some teach their children not to believe, and some just don't talk about it at all. For others, their childhood experience of their family, or perhaps with their father, may shape the way they may or may not believe in God. Whatever the case may be, there are several different theories about if and whether a child's relationship with their parents affects whether or not they're drawn towards or away from God. In my research of over 50 former atheists, about one in every five rejected a God imaged as a heavenly father because of a negative or even a positive experience with their own earthly father. That wasn't the only reason for their disbelief, but it was generally part of their narrative. Again, that was true for some, but certainly not for all. Here I believe it's important to recognize that although theories are out there regarding the nature of atheism and the reason for disbelief, it's important not to broad brush an assumption about anyone before you actually listen to their story. And that's what we're going to do in our time together today. I'm so pleased to have on the podcast today, Dr. Carolyn Weber. She's a best-selling, award-winning author, speaker, Oxford University scholar, and literature professor. She's also a former atheist who came to belief in God. Her book, Surprised by Oxford, talks about her journey from atheism to Christianity. It has won several literary distinctions, including the Grace Irwin Award, the largest award for Christian writing in Canada. And I must say on a personal note that Surprised by Oxford is truly an excellent piece of writing, beautifully crafted, a compelling story that's just hard to put down, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. She also has another book, her fourth, just being released, called Sex and the City of God, and we will hear more about that today on the podcast as well. Welcome to the podcast, Carolyn. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jenna, for having me here and for the very gracious introduction. As we're getting started, Carolyn, why don't you tell me a little bit about your new book that's just being released? Yes, thank you. It's actually very exciting because uh, it comes out today, and um, I had never anticipated writing a book with the word sex in its title, <laughs> especially as a literature professor. Uh, I'm aware how <laughs> fallacious that can sound. Um, and my editor at IVP, Cindy Bunch, who's just a lovely, lovely person, I, I just treasure working with her, and I have before, uh, we thought it was a lot of fun, but we also thought it carried some theological weight. And so the title itself reflects how I wanted to approach the notion of our relationships um, being based first on our relationship with God and contrasting the two cities as identified by Augustine. So th- and in a way, the, the title is really quite serious. So it pokes fun at our culture and and, you know, many of us have heard of sex in the city in terms of, you know, that notion of how we see sex in the media. Um, but I wanted to contrast that with uh, Augustine's idea of the two cities, the city of God and the city of man. And that how that really is the ultimate line in the sand of um, our citizenship. Which city do we belong to? Uh, do we choose to belong to the city of man and the uh, temporal? Or do we choose to belong to the city of God and the eternal and we're, those cities are called to live in peace, uh, as Augustine identifies in his famous work, City of God, but they also have very different ends. And that kind of teleological difference makes all the difference really in the world. And so I wanted to set those two side by side and explore that concept in terms of how I'm trying to live that out and 
uh, and use personal story to look at relationships, um, but also looking at how when we choose to be citizens of the city of God and we're extended grace uh, and we receive that grace, we're also um, married to Christ first, regardless of our relationship status. Uh, so it doesn't matter if we're single or married or whatnot, according to the world, we're married first to Christ. And how are we ordering our loves, as Augustine would say, according to that first love, uh, that first commandment of mm. love, love first. And uh, so that intrigued me, um, bringing those kind of two, what might seem like a metaphor, um, uh, very much a metaphysical conceit, actually kind of bringing them together and um, holding them together in that title and then exploring that throughout this new book. That sounds fascinating, Carolyn. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thank you. Yes, um, and much uh, success to you there. But today, as you know, our, our focus is on story, on your story, on the story of your your journey from atheism to Christianity. And I want to set that as a, as a literary professor and understanding the value of context, um, you'll, you'll value the, this question. And that is, I, I want you to set the context for the, the story of your life. How, what, what context were you raised in that formed mm. your atheism? What was your community? What was your culture? What did they think about God or religion or, or those kinds of things? Let's kind of start broadly and then we'll narrow down to your family. So yeah, so I I would have defined myself as agnostic in that I didn't I couldn't disprove God, but I didn't really believe in a God. Um, and I I I didn't have any sort of structure. Um, I didn't attend church, anything along those lines. Uh, and having grown up in a home with um, a father who had ended up being quite absent from my life, and when he did return, he was sometimes really violent or aggressive. Uh, my father had been a self-made man. Um, he had grown up in a lot of poverty himself and had become quite successful. And then due to some circumstances in life, he lost that. And he really sort of lost his rudder and his sense of self. And he ended up having um, a significant breakdown as well. And so my mom largely raised us uh, as a single mom. So I was also really hesitant about trusting fathers in general, let alone a heavenly father. And so that really also, I think, informed as it, as you know, it, as it does, that sense of um, trusting that kind of figure or wanting to explore that kind of figure. I had a lot more anger than I probably would have admitted to um, and nervousness about anything on depending on anything or anyone other than myself. And uh, in the sense that things could be achieved if I just worked hard enough, pushed hard enough, pushed through hard enough things could be achieved, um, security or, or whatnot. And so by the time I had gotten to college, and I think I would be the perfect example of someone who had gone through, you know, 20 years of public education and had never cracked open a Bible, which I find really stunning. <laughs> Actually, <you> know, <laughs> we're not taught it even as a book or as history. Uh, and right. When I finally did read it, I was really amazed at it, actually, as a piece of literature and just as a story that unfolded from Genesis to Revelation. I couldn't believe how intricately the story worked itself out. And as a lover of literature and a student of literature, I could see all not only all the literary devices, but also just how amazingly beautifully put together this book was and overall, but also in its phrasing and that you just couldn't make this stuff up. And once I think the gospel is planted, you can't unhear it. Uh, even if it really bothers you, it's like this big elephant in the room. And so by the time I was approaching graduate studies, that door had been kind of knocked open for me. And I had this longing. I was studying world religions. I was studying world religions as part of my MPhil thesis. So I was looking at all sorts of different religions, but I was drawn more and more and more to Christianity. Uh, because of really how unique it was and its emphasis on grace and this Bible that just blew me away when I had finally read it cover to cover, uh, that it was life-changing. And, um, wow. So I didn't grow up Let's, with any of that. So Caro, you're, you're telling me that you read the Bible for the first time when you went to college. And I want to get a little bit of a retrospective on that. 
What did you think the Bible was before you read it the first time? You said you had had very little exposure. Was Had you never been to church or your mm-hmm. culture hadn't introduced you to much about the content of the Bible or anything mm-hmm. like that? Very much so. I, I had been to church uh, on and off a couple times a year, you know, Easter and Christmas or whatnot as a child. Um, and I attended uh, my par- my grandparents that I were closest to were Hungarian. So I would actually go to a Catholic church, um, but all of the services, the mass were in Hungarian or Latin. Uh, so basically it was my sister and I sitting in a pew trying to stay awake until we got to the desserts. <laughs> Oh my. Okay. <laughs> um, I didn't understand much. And I, I knew bits and pieces of, I'd heard bits and pieces of scripture, uh, like you would in maybe mainstream media even now. But I think so many of us cite scripture or hear it, we don't really even know that it's come from the Bible. I teach now secular mm-hmm. students all the time that say that they had no idea, you know, that that saying came from Jesus or whatnot. So there was a little bit floating in my family, but my mother had had fallen away fairly significantly from any childhood, even Catholic faith, um, because at that point, you know, most of her family had passed, and she had gone through quite a, you know, probably a pretty significantly difficult and bitter period in her own life and marriage and divorce, and she was pretty busy surviving and helping us survive. Uh, and uh, so there really wasn't a lot of room um, for thinking faith questions. I was um, going to school, trying to get good grades. I was enjoying school. I was busy there. Uh, I was working several jobs to help support the family, um, which is also, I think, very common in North American culture to be working a lot as well while you're studying. And I felt like the first time I, I, I felt like the first time I heard the gospel, it was like I'd hit, I was a hummingbird that hit the glass hard. It's kind of how I put it in my um, book was it had been so busy up until then. Uh, that I had never really thought about who God was to me until someone posed that question to me. So you had very little exposure to the Bible. Mm -hmm. What did you think the Bible was or God or religion or Christianity as an agnostic? Mm. What was your, what did you think it was? Was it just something made up by man to satisfy, to satisfy some kind of psychological or social longing or belonging mm-hmm. um well for a, i mean for a long time i i didn't really hold any sort of opinion either way it didn't seem religion didn't seem relevant uh and i think people are always drawn to how is jesus relevant to me or how how is you know a faith even relevant to me um as i got older uh I, I guess my main exposure, Jan, would have been to, to just uh, Christianity through the media, which is horrible. <laughs> mm. I sort of thought, uh, you know, Chris, uh, Christians were big haired TV evangelists who took your money. Um, right. And, you know, that you would make fun of. Uh, I didn't grow up with, you know, Christian friends or knowing a lot of Christians. The few that I did at school seemed to be socially awkward, or they seemed to make these life choices that seemed very, very alien to what was, you know, mainstream thought. Um, I hadn't ever really had someone articulate the gospel to me. Uh, And I always am amazed at that. I remember William Drummond saying, you know, never give people a thimble of the gospel, give them the whole thing. And sometimes I think we hold back sharing the gospel because we think, oh, it's going to sound ludicrous or I don't want to alienate people or they won't be able to take, you know, take it all in. But it's really quite condescending because if you, I I think the first time I just had it explained to me just very objectively, I thought, wow, no one's ever said that to me before. Um, I've never actually thought about that as a viable truth that I can either roll around and accept or reject a lot of times we think we know what Christianity is, but it's this watered down or undiscussed or media media version that really has nothing to do with um, the clarity of the gospel. And, 
and so it really wasn't until I was in graduate studies and that had been presented to me where I thought, oh, okay, if, if you know, the old liar, lunatic, or Lord, right, if this is either crazy or, or this is ridiculous and unfathomable, or wow, if this is true, I've got something I need to think through here. <laughs> and uh, right, so I, right. I didn't see my upbringing as anybody actually overtly trying to keep me away from faith or anything like that. I would, I would have described my family as loving enough to get by, Jana, but broken enough not really to deserve God's attention. And, um, you know, I, I had, my mom had turned to drinking to manage a lot of her depression. And my father, as I said, was in and out of our lives, but, you know, I was happy enough at school and I was close enough to my siblings and I wouldn't have described myself as, you know, really, um, despondent or, or, you know, really joyful and very, very busy as well. I think very sort of every man, um, very kind of. I'm open to all of our journeys and stories, but, uh, but there was this longing, um, which was why I was drawn to that notion of longing in this last book I wrote, this longing, this desire for something. I, I guess later when I read Lewis's description of it as sensuked, I was like, wow, that's it. You know, this longing in us that's human. And that's why I studied the romantic writers before I became a Christian. I was even drawn to that period of writers in the 18th and 19th century that are drawn to the notion of infinite longing that's planted in us, um, that makes us very human. And, um, and as I began to explore Christianity more, it was definitely more in line with that longing and explained why I had that longing and fulfilled that longing or pointed me towards why I had it. And, uh, and so I would have said it was a long percolation. Um, I was really resistant to the faith for a long time too, um, because I felt that, I think it's very scary to think you don't have control over something. Um, grace is a real leveler. <laughs> you know, it's not, yes. kar- you know, it's not karma and it's not um, something you can meet out or control or work hard enough for. And it blew apart all my categories of being self-sufficient, uh, particularly so as a child of my circumstances. And when you strip that away, it's quite terrifying, really. Um, to uh, to trust in that way, and to also realize um, where we fall in between sin and redemption. But I do remember reading Genesis and thinking, "Wow, this just makes sense." The fallen world made complete sense um, when I looked around at me, and there were so many things in the Bible I was prepared to knock against them cognitively and to take them down intellectually, and yet they rang really true. Um, not because I necessarily agreed with them, but because I really could see the evidence for them around me and in me. So once you became open to the Bible and you were really taking it in, reading it, perhaps seeing what was in it for the first time with with open eyes, mm-hmm. and you stumbled upon Jesus and you stumbled upon the gospel, you say. Can you, for those listeners who who really don't understand what the gospel is when you, when you refer to that, could you perhaps talk a little bit about what the gospel is? I know you mentioned something with regard to grace, but perhaps paint a a clearer picture for those who don't know the term. Oh, absolutely. Well, I didn't know the term. Um, I didn't even know what the old and new testaments were. I had no idea how many books were in the Bible, all those kind of things. Um, And Uh, I remember my grandmother praying and my grandmother talking about Jesus in Hungarian. Um, So going back to that felt a bit like a homecoming, but the gospel itself just means the good news. And uh, which I thought at first sounded awfully condescending, you know, how does somebody have the good news? And that means I must have the bad. (laughs) Um, But to really understand uh, when I was asked the question, who is God to you? I had never really thought about answering that question. And I love how invitational questions are. And it made me think, who was God to me? And the gospel shows God as a being that is close to us, that cares for us, that loves for us, somebody who's entered into our state of being, um, who brings us the good news that we have been saved 
by Jesus coming and being here with us, by Jesus giving his life for us, that death is not the end, death is not all, uh, that we have um, an eternal life and a whole life um, made for us, offered for us through grace, through God coming and dying for us and extending his life to us in that way. And to reconcile us for the ways that we can't measure up, the ways that we can't be perfect um, in his, ever measure up to his holiness. Um, And I was amazed at that kind of love. Um, My grandmother's favorite Bible verse, I mean, we didn't talk about the Bible a lot, but, and she didn't speak much English, but her favorite Bible verse was love one another. Um, Those were actually her dying words. And when I, began to learn where those words came from and what they really meant. Love one another as I have loved you. I was blown away at what the gospel it is. It is so different from any other religion. No other religion has this God that has fully entered into what it means to be human in every element of suffering and has died for us and walks with us and restores us to being whole with him. And uh, within all of creation and with, the vastness of all of everything. And it's really mind blowing to hold that in one's thought, but also to know that it's, in, it's really also not complicated. It's one of those paradoxes. It's immensely complicated and mysterious and it's not, <laughs> and we can't earn that. Yes. grace. You know, we can't earn that grace. We can't make that grace happen. It's not in our control. It's not ours to give, but it's entirely ours to receive for having done nothing except believing that it's being given to us and who's giving it to us. And that's incredible. It's, uh, and it changes everything. It gives you a whole different lens through which to see and hear. We're going to quickly pause our story for a moment so that I can tell you a little bit about the C.S. Lewis Institute. For over 40 years, the Institute has been committed to developing wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ who will articulate share, defend, and live their faith in personal and public life. Please consider making a donation to the C.S. Lewis Institute. To donate, go to our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org and click Donate. Thank you. Now let's get back to our story. Now, as someone, uh, obviously, again, a a literary scholar who understands story, This is a wonderful story. It is yeah. good news. But it, and you said that it rang true. It seemed to ring true to who you were in your human condition. But was there something more than an existential sense of felt truth about it? I mean, we'd all love to believe something that we want to be true or that sounds true. Did you do any investigation in terms of its historical veracity or... You know, how would you know that, mm-hmm. that the story of this person of Jesus and the story of Jesus is actually true beyond just a story? Right. Or just a feeling or just a, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't underestimate the power of knowing something is true in a way that you can't quite explain the knowing. And that sounds like a cop out. But I mean, but I think that's why it's such a powerful word in the Bible, knowing. Um, because I, I remember when I did first hear the gospel, it was like a little combination lock clicked on my heart and sort of clicked open, even though I never in a million years would have wanted to admit it that. Um, but I think that's a reason why it does get people's attention. Uh, people get their knickers in the knot over Jesus and no one else really to the same extent. <laughs> if you want to get people's attention, right, you know, you, you you say right. that name and, you know, people are mad or they're joyful or, you know, it's, it's uh, definitely the line in the sand word and name. There's no other name like it. And um, so there was something knowing about it. Uh, but I did do a lot of research. I was at the time, you know, researching world religions. And I was looking particularly at different theologies that were shaping 18th and 19th century British and European thought. So I was really interested in the development of the church as well as other. Um, I was actually working on metempsychosal and tri- transmigration theory in the East because of how it was influencing this group of writers. And it really, it did. It really threw into my face a lot of doctrine. I, I did read a lot. I, w- I really wanted to poke holes in it. Um, 
I remember when I read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, I I thought he and I would have gotten along great on a bus ride. (laughs) 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 I was absolutely going to poke holes in it and it irritated me. And the Christians I knew, they had something I wanted, but I also just really wanted to take them down. It just, it, it, and I realized that that was coming from a place of great wounding for me. Um, that if I really wanted to be objective and thoughtful here, actually much of the historical and biblical, um, let alone, you know, Holy Spirit, even just leaving that element out was very, very convicting, um, around the faith. Ultimately, there is a leap. There's ultimately you, you can only reason yourself so far into a corner and it does come to a leap of faith. Um, there's no way around that. But I think that that's actually one of the most powerful and convicting things about Christianity is that we can't put God in a box. Uh, he won't stay in it and he doesn't operate in that way. And we can't, we can't even control how it all works. And um, there still is a, a supernatural element that defies our understanding. And I actually, yes, there that, certainly is. you know, I find that actually quite convicting, intellectually convicting. They don't have to be at opposite ends at all. Um, there's a lot to be said about, you know, believing wisely and uh, the two or spiritual thinking and the two are not contradictory at all. A paradox is only a seeming contradiction, an apparent one, not a real one. And um, I've always found that the most powerful tr- truths lie in those two being held together. And that's really um eventually what drew me uh, to uh, make that, that leap. It's the difference between everything. Mm. I want, you've said a couple of things I want to explore for just a moment. One thing that you inferred was that when you were pushing back against Christians and Christianity, you were doing so because it was a place of great wounding for Mm -hmm. you that you felt there was something that was causing you to push back. Can you, or would you mind talking about that, the relationship between this push and perhaps mm-hmm. whatever that was deep inside of you that was that didn't want it to be true? You know, Jenna, I, I actually think deep inside of me, I wanted it to be true, and I just felt that that would be too dangerous to allow that to happen. Um, In what way? In that this incredible love story that has been written for everyone in the world, and nobody is exempt from it. Um, Nobody's beyond it. Um, It doesn't belong to just a certain group of people, and it doesn't just come through generation or adoption. It's, it's entirely open to everyone. Um, it, it rang so true. And as I began to realize that it shaped my lens of thinking, that transformative thinking that at first it was easy, for example, to think, oh, you know, these crazy Christians, then they're, they're, um, you know, touting chastity, they're touting not sleeping with someone before you get married. Uh, you know, and really how believable is that? And how practical is that? And, you know, have they never really been in a moment of temptation? And have they never really woken up and smelled the coffee as to, you know, what needs to happen in this day and age and blah, 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 and, you know, and we're not, you know, as a feminist, you know, we're no longer property or chattel or anything along those lines, completely unaware of a concept like my body being a temple, you know, that had never been taught to me. Um, or mm. shared with me, or even discussed with me among friends, that um, that there might be something holy about my body as well as spirit-filled and connected, um, that there might be a larger design and a larger purpose and a larger plan that I was part of and all my decisions affected not only me but others in that. And that there was a tremendous beauty and responsibility and um, investment and the distinction between, you know, new wine and old wine <laughs> and the old wine tastes better because of what's gone into aging and, and experience and wisdom. And our culture doesn't, it gives us a lot of information, but not much wisdom. And I think that, you know, that's the big arc, the big journey between 
Eden and heaven is experience and wisdom, the accumulation of wisdom. And as I began to think about, wow, what if I did think of my life as the Bible talks about? What if these things are true? What if my body is a temple? Um, What if God wants me to be holy as he is holy? What if there's actually something really beautiful and design-filled and purposeful in that? Um, As opposed to all these other messages that are really quite empty. What are the repercussions for me in that? And I began to see that it had nothing then to do with high-handed purity or the politics of the body or um, being chattel or anything, the ways that the world has twisted things from the fall, which just makes so much sense. I mean, obviously the first sin to me just seems like consumerism, (laughs) you know, consumption of of other. And um, in terms of preferring the love of self. And I was really moved at that deep, deep love of God for us, that if we put it first, best helped us love ourselves and others. And, um, and it was transformative, transforming your thinking. It, it was transformative. And it just seemed like when you started to look at things from that access, I began to realize, wow, this is a different way of thinking. This is a different way of being. We're not taught this in schools. We don't turn on the news and it's, it, it's available. It's often, in, if you don't have Christian friends or Christian community, it's not even talked about at all. Um, but there is another way of being. And, uh, you know, we talk about it as Christians as the way, Christ being the way. Um, but it's, it's another way that isn't often shown or talked about or discussed. And, and it, I was really amazed at how it um, made me really truly see so many things differently uh, and that there's a heart and mind and soul connection and all of that, that um, no other path really shows or, or calls you to combine. So those, those really deep longings and those desires that you had early, you found as you were exploring Jesus yeah. And the Bible and the Gospels, you found something that was true and good and beautiful and, like you say, life-transforming, something that would give you a very different way of thinking about your own life and the way that you live it and the way that you understand it. Absolutely. Were there, uh, were there people, you, you, you spoke, you've spoken about... Um, maybe dots or interactions with Christians throughout your upbringing, but did you enter into a time in your life as you were exploring where you actually encountered those Christians who embodied what you're just speaking of, this other way of living, this different way of understanding life? Uh, mm-hmm. and a, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think those were the people that really drew me to the faith to begin with. Just like Hannah Whittle Smith says, you know, if, if the best testimony is living the Bible, is as looking at your life as a living testimony, and um, you know, being a lover of literature, I, th- I really think Jenna that God speaks to us in our various love languages that He knows are most beloved to us. And I love literature, I love words, and I remember reading the Bible, and there was there was just nowhere to hide. There were every every stripe of person is found in the Bible, every stripe. And I remember reading the New Testament too and thinking, wow, here is the guy that's praying. He doesn't have enough belief and he's praying for belief. You know, here is the person with immense belief and he's wanting someone, you know, um, healed on his behalf. Here's a woman who's bled for 12 years and and um, that's being healed at the same time that Jesus is traveling to an, another girl who's 12 years old and about to enter the ex- exact opposite time of her life. It was just so intricate there was something for everybody every type of person i knew but also every type of person within myself that i felt in scripture i kept meeting facets of myself in all of those people and then in quote unquote real people i was meeting i i was meeting christians who were willing first of all they were really good at asking questions <laughs> mm. and i think questions are so important they invite you to the table jesus uses them all the time 
parables and questions, stories and questions are so important. They're so inviting. Um, there's lack of judgment. There's opening of conversation. And I was moved by their genuine interest in hearing where I was at, what I was thinking, what I was longing for. Um, instead of hitting me over the head as I feared from maybe what I had seen on television or whatnot with, you know, trite phrases or wrote, you know, swirls for eyes passages from the Bible. <laughs> they, yes. you know, they were very real, genuine conversations, people who were really interested in meeting me where I was at, which is how Jesus is when he interacts with people in the gospel. You know, he never walks up to anybody and says, you suck. And, <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, pull your life together too bad. You know, you had a difficult childhood. Like, you know, he doesn't do that to anybody. He, he entirely meets them where they're at. And, um, I really had the blessing of meeting Christians who were, you know, not perfect themselves by any means. No one's perfect, but they were inhabiting that, um, that were incarnating that essence of Christ in their conversations with me. And then their welcoming of me to the table. Um, and that really genuinely spoke to me. Uh, and uh, it's a, it's a very powerful thing to be met in the real. Um, and Jesus is the real. Yes, he is. And then to be met with people who actually live like they know Jesus and live like Jesus is in and through their lives, um, it can be surprising. Um, your book is called mm -hmm. Surprised by Oxford. I presume a lot of these, I guess, changes or revelations were happening as you were on that campus is that is that a place where you actually were were able to move from this place of busyness and survival to a place of contemplation and study and mm -hmm. pursuit mm -hmm. exactly on a very pragmatic level i went from the very very busy typical north american student life of lots of spinning plates you know with studies and with jobs and things even added soup, you know, even more so with the background I came from of having to provide for my family and myself. Um, uh, and um, my father, as I said, had um, struggled with mental illness and that as well, a lot of debt, um, a lot of financial pressures and concerns. Um, I, I grew up at times with immense poverty. And, um, and I have a heart for students in that in that way, a lot of times we don't know what someone is facing when we meet them. We have no idea um, whether they're hungry or not. Uh, we have no idea. Uh, and again, that's where I love the Bible, the symbolism of poverty, all sorts of different forms of poverty. Um, and I think with when I got to Oxford, for one, I wasn't allowed to work. Uh, the British Academy doesn't allow students to work. It's a foreign concept, but it's a wonderful one. <laughs> for <North America. laughs> Yes. You actually have to focus on your studies. Uh, I was on a Commonwealth scholarship, so that was enough, more money than I'd ever seen in my life, and it was paying my tuition in that as well. But, of course, you're not allowed to work on that. Um, and so I finally had this time, and, and at Oxford, they want you to have this time uh, to percolate your ideas and to make friendships. And I would go to tutorials, I would go to lectures, but then I would have time to go on a walk through a garden with a friend or go to a pub and talk about ideas. And there was much more of this contemplative, um, conversational uh, lifestyle that was expected. And it was not just, um, oh, this elitism. It was actually considered very much part and parcel of studying. Uh, and it seemed very alien to me. At first, for a while, I actually felt really strange. I felt like I had all this time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't running to these two or three jobs or everything else. But then you realize, like, wow, it's actually this breathing space um, about being still and about thinking through your ideas and, and actually thinking through why you're here. And a lot of that we're not allowed to do and it's not cultivated. Uh, I think actually of many powers that be in the fallen world would prefer that we don't meditate and we don't contemplate. Um, and distraction is, I think, one of the devil's greatest uh, tools losing that traction. Um, and it's, you know, I think 
being able to talk with people, um, people whose example I grew to trust more and more. Um, they were really living their walk and talking their talk and they were sincere and, uh, and open. And I, and the more I was reading and studying myself, it was a whole different experience than the harried, you know, uh, white rabbit. <laughs> um, right. and it can sound idealized, but I think actually Christians, even in a very busy culture, know we now know me on the other side of the looking glass now knows that that's actually a very important spiritual discipline to have in my own life, regardless of how busy it is. But when you're coming from the other city, <laughs> when you're traveling from the city of man towards the city of God, it, it's a, it, it's a very alien thing to put aside time for devotional or time for scripture or to read humanetically or to pray. Um, those are not things that, you know, the greater fallen world teaches us to do or wants us to do. And so that, I think that shift was, was really life-changing for um, thinking through. Because for a while, you know, I went through this cynicism and I thought, oh, you know, I'm sure I'm just being drawn to this Christianity because I'm now here and I've got all this time to think this through. And isn't this great? And when I actually go back to real life, it's not going to be relevant at all. Um, or is it a crutch? I was wary that it might be a crutch for, um, yes. you know, things that I had wanted in my life that had fallen through. Um, that it would be a pseudo father, you know, I would just keep pushing on God and eventually he would take off his mask and it would be Darth Vader, you know, it would be that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and instead realizing, wow, those epics run deep, you know, um, those monomyths that search for the father runs really deep for a reason. Mm -hmm. And, um, which is what led to this last book, you know, writing it after losing my father. Cause I think our cosmos tilts when we lose our parents, regardless of our relationship with them. And it's just, I think that, that having that chance to look at in retrospect, those points of light and how God has been there for you or connected them for you. Um, having the time not that you have to always be thinking or that it's a crutch, but I began to see that it wasn't a crutch at all. It was actually something I very, I very much not only needed, but would be nothing without. It was a total juxtaposition of your prior understanding and perspective of God, especially God as father. That's quite amazing. So mm -hmm. along your journey, I guess all of these pieces started coming together. You were reading the Bible, you were and you found yourself in the scripture and that there was really nowhere to hide. You were finding truths about Jesus, about the historical nature of the Bible and how it's not only historical, but it, it matches and meets every longing and desire of your heart. All of these things were coming together. You were meeting Christians who were embodying this authenticity, that you were a life that was attractive which is, again, just such a surprise. Mm -hmm. So you, I guess all of these, these threads started becoming woven together, in a sense, into a tapestry towards a place of belief. Was there like a tipping point uh, in which you said, yes, I believe this is true, and I just, I can't go back? Mm. I love your, your use of the word tapestry. Um, because very much so I feel that's how all our lives are. And, you know, with a tapestry, there's the design is so beautiful and clear on the top. And then underneath you see all the knots and everything else <laughs> and, yes. and the handiwork, right. The hard work that goes into it. Um, yes. Yeah, so I would say all those things worked together. Um, a lot like Lewis feeling like in some ways a very reluctant convert. And yet there is this moment, uh, for me, there was a moment. I remember it was actually um, Valentine's Day um, back in 1994 and um, where I got to a point where I thought, okay, I've kicked against this and I kicked against this. And it wasn't necessarily that they were all intellectual answers, although many of them were. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, the Bible just makes common sense. Um, oftentimes, or even the things that are complicated or difficult, there's, there's a lot of practical. Um, and as an academic, practical feedback, but as an academic, I also get frustrated with people who denounce the Bible or, you know, drive around with their 
Darwin inside of their Christian fish bumper stickers, and they've probably never cracked open a Bible. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And I think, you know, I've been like that too. So just read it, just read it cover to cover and then see, at least you'll have the fodder to make an argument. Um, That's probably the academic in me, you know, know your sources and um, at least have read the book uh, before you criticize it. Um, But you, you might have something that you respond to or your heart responds to. Uh, but I think, yeah, it was, it eventually got to this point where at least for me, there had been this sort of slow reckoning, reckoning and reckoning. And a lot of things very sort of graciously answered for me because my love language is words and literature and, and probably argumentation even. Um, but getting to a point where I thought, okay, is this true or is it not? And I think it comes down to that point of light, Jenna, a lot like, I mean, I'll I'll give you an example. One of the stories that really irked me in the Bible was the thief on the cross, you know, when Jesus is crucified and there's a thief to his left and a thief to his right. And the one that denounces and the one that asks him to remember him that day. And that, before I was a Christian, that story used to bug me like crazy. It drove me crazy because I used to think, gosh, there's that guy. He's been a sinner his whole life. Now he's asking to be forgiven. Like what a jerk. (laughs) And of course, (laughs) now you know, things are looking desperate and he's probably thinking I've got nothing to lose. And Jesus is right next to him. And you know, oh my goodness. And I remember saying this to someone who had actually really articulated the gospel to me and was somebody that I, I very much cared for and respected their opinion. And I told them how much this story irked me. And he said to me, well, thank God for that story. And I said, when are you kidding me? And he said, no, absolutely. Thank God. He goes, we're all that thief on that cross. Mm. You know, we don't deserve it and we can receive it at any time, but we never deserve it. And, and, you know, and there's that moment where you have to, you, you have to be accountable for your soul. No one else can be. You can't slough off that responsibility. You don't stand before God at the end of time and say, hey, what about him? <laughs> you know, right. there's incredible. And, and that's when the penny dropped. I was like, wow, that's personal relationship. And not that it's necessarily just heavy handed and, you know, phrases like blessed assurance used to bother me because it always appeared in like a heavier font, you know, just all this stuff that Christians threw around. <laughs> that seems so trite and empty or, you know, canned. And I was like, wait a minute, there is, it's like Shakespeare now, you know, we all think, oh, Shakespeare is, everybody quotes Shakespeare, but there's actually such immense beauty in it that it, you know, we've lost sight of it. We're looking at the wrong side of the tapestry and um, it seems threadbare to us and not relevant. And um, I, I do remember thinking, you know, I, um, it's, it's game time. (laughs) You know, where, um, do I say, remember me or do I mock him? Because that's really the only two answers that there are. And, um, and even, you know, saying nothing, uh, isn't going to, um, be the truth, uh, and the grace that I desperately need. And I, I know is there for the taking, and so I do remember late night at night on that evening, um, accepting the Lord and all those phrases used to make me really uncomfortable, you know, accepting the Lord as my Lord and savior, or, you know, all those kind of phrases I would hear tossed around or used, but they're really so deeply entrenched with meaning that sometimes I think all we can do is feel like we mock them because we're so afraid of them and what they might really mean if they're true. Mm. And they change everything because they are true. And, uh, and then I think there are times in our walk, our spiritual walk where faith is, um, a form of sacrifice. Um, obedience is a form of sacrifice. We, we, choose to believe even when we feel empty or we feel we can't we still put that on the altar and he always blesses it you know like lewis said right you know the driest prayers um please him most uh the, the prayers from that really dry place um are still forms of of trusting 
We'll return to our story in just a moment, but first I'd like to ask you a few questions. Have you ever wondered what heaven is really going to be like? What we will look like? What we will do? We all have questions about what heaven will look like. And after 25 years of extensive research, Dr. Randy Alcorn has the answers. On January 22nd, 2021, the C.S. Lewis Institute will have a live stream event with Dr. Randy Alcorn. And Randy will be teaching about heaven. You can find out more about this live stream event and register on the C.S. Lewis website, www.cslewisinstitute.org. If for some reason you missed this episode, you can always find it in our resources area. Now let's get back to our conversation. Well, it sounds like in your life, everything has changed and Mm. your place of trust is in Christ Mm -hmm. and that it is something that is not something to be afraid of, but something to embrace something that is life-giving, that it's true and good and beautiful and all of those things. Mm -hmm. You express it with such grace and with such wisdom. It's obvious to me that that you've been living in this, what you call the real, for a while. Mm. Um, Thank you. I hope so. I I, I would imagine if you could. Pardon me? I, I we hope we all are. I mean, I think that's the wonderful thing about Jesus is you don't know. Um, I mean, I, I love that the fact that we can pray for wisdom and it's given to us, but that we can speak um, like this, Jenna, as as sisters in Christ. You know that there's a whole other level of communication and understanding, and and I think the big one for me is to know that I'm not alone. Even when I do feel very painfully alone, I know as a Christian I'm not, and. Um, no matter what. And that makes all the difference. Um, I think in a spiritual walk. It is. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's an amazing gift. It is. Um, this, this community of those who are in Christ, as they say, um, as we're kind of winding this down, it's just been so rich. Oh, I wondered, Carolyn, since you are so wise, <laughs> <laughs> If you could, I don't know, but at least I've got a prayer line. I I really mean that. (laughs) Um, To, if you could give some advice. That's all I'll say. (laughs) Gracious company goes a long way. Yes. Uh, if If you could speak to perhaps a curious skeptic who might be listening to this podcast who might find themselves where you were uh, at one time in your life, skeptical, pushing back for whatever reason, what would you, uh, what would you say to that person to encourage them to perhaps listen to the other side, to give Christianity a chance to perhaps take a moment to actually consider those big issues like you have? Mm. That is such a wonderful question. Um, I mean, almost thinking what I would have said to myself uh, years ago is first to really sit with what what is the reality of you being all. <laughs> if you are all that there is, where is that getting you? <laughs> Mm-hmm. How is that working for you? Um, how will that always work for you? I, I, M. Forster has this wonderful line that says, the reality of death kills a man and the idea of death saves him. And, you know, and as Peter Kreef says, life is fatal. It's fatal for every single person. And the great philosophical question is what happens to us when we die? And I think it's so easy for atheists or whatnot to say, well, it doesn't matter. Nothing happens. I'm gone. Um, but it's so connected to so much more purpose, not just this existential anxiety, but so much more about our worthiness and our dignity and our, um, our being made for and in love and to love. And I would just sit with that question. What if it is all about me? And what if it 
ends begins and ends with me. Um, where does that leave me? And then what? And is that a reality that I want to ascribe to and believe in? Or is there another way? And if Jesus calls himself the way, what does that mean? And I would really challenge someone who hasn't read the Bible to read it, to just read it, even if they read it objectively, cynically, whatnot, read it. And there'll be tough parts and there'll be boring bits and all sorts of things, but actually who knows what speaks to whom. Just just read it and see if you are unchanged by the end, which I highly doubt because I think we're, we're changed by everything we read. Um, but once you hear the gospel, you can't unhear it. And how is it going to sit with you? And then is that going to be a full rejection that you can package up and set aside? Or is there something there that you want to explore um, that speaks to you, that you feel leads you to uh, a more abundant life and death and life again? Um, and will change the way that you love yourself and will change the way dramatically that you love others, even when you're not in the mood. And we'll have um, a place in an eternal story and purpose uh, that is so much bigger and more profound um, than our own little selves. And I think I would just challenge someone to do that and not to have to do it in an overwhelming way, but just to give in to that longing. I've never met anyone, Janet, just like I've never met a child who is an atheist. I've never met anyone who wasn't shaped by some sort of longing, who didn't long to be loved or longed to be accepted or longed to be cared for or longed to matter. You know, it's the essence of every enduring work of literature, right? Everybody like Harry Potter wants to get the letter that says they're special. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and um, hence that's why I think, you know, the Bible's so full of missives, but there's, where does that longing point us? And I do agree with Augustine that it's a longing that can only be fulfilled by God. It points us to God to be fulfilled by him. Um, And that's actually a really beautiful and freeing thing. Uh, It replaces terror and panic in the empty world with the fear and reverence of holiness and the eternal one. And it's a different type of fear. Um, And it's a different type of fulfillment and it's one that lasts and endures and it's immensely rich and it, you know, it'll wane and it'll be consolation and desolation. And you, you know, you could feel close to God and far as far from God as you can get, but the line is always open. It's always there. And, um, in spite of ourselves. And I just think that's an immeasurable gift and, uh, a gift becomes a real gift when you appreciate it and recognize what you have. Yes. If someone were to take your advice and pick up the Bible, where would you recommend that they open it for the first time? Would they start at the beginning? Yep. To cite my favorite musical again. (laughs) 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 It's always a good place to start. I, I, I always say just start at the beginning. Just read it. Okay. Just read it through. I'm, I mean, maybe because I'm a literary person, I always read things through and kind of, you know, trudge through chronologically. I I can certainly see, I mean, for me personally, what the book that was most influential, I think in my ultimate conversion was John. I just loved the gospel of John. And when I was reading John was when some things really became very clear for me when I finally sort of made the leap. I'm sure that there's some kind of scripture or verse that speaks to everyone in some sort of special way. And there are probably more efficient ways of kind of dropping it to encourage people where to read or whatnot. But I'm always an advocate of just, you know, just go through the whole thing. You never know what's going to speak to you where you never know what's going to tick you off. I tell my students when they're writing essays, always write on something that bothers you <laughs> because that's something wow. that get your attention. Um, yes. You know, something that you're trying to work through. Uh, so I'm always amazed at friends of mine when we read the Bible and somebody will be completely bothered by something and somebody will be completely fascinated by something else. 
Um, I always thought, you know, the genealogy, for instance, was so boring and it went on and on and on. And I remember Bono, one of my favorite rock stars, saying he loved the genealogy. He thought it was really fascinating and it's one of his favorite parts. And that's what made me start to think about, you know, even a theme like sex in the city of God and our relationship to relationships and, you know, being married to Christ regardless of our status, but also why is there genealogy in the Bible and, and adoption and, and whatnot as well. And who knows what will speak to you, but I think if you can read the whole thing, you'll also get a sense of the story, the moving from Genesis to Revelation, um, the absolute intricacy of the overall larger story and all the smaller stories within it, like ourselves. And I think everyone wants at the, they do want, you know, a happy ending makes up for a lot, but they do want the right, the white stone with their name on it that only God knows. Um, everyone, mm. I don't know anyone who doesn't want to be known and um, fully and truly known and acquitted and loved and loved in spite of um, and fully safe and known. And I think it's what we, yes, you know, what we all the, long for. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good place to start. Yeah. Yes. And the last question for you, Carolyn, is again, a bit of advice for Christians who might be listening and who, what would you, what would you tell them in terms of you obviously witnessed some embodied Christianity that was very attractive, whether it was intellectually or their way of hospitality or the way they engaged you, you know, you, you spoke of them inviting you to the table how can we as Christians make Christianity more plausible or more attractive? What would you say to them? Oh, that is a good question too. And I feel I need advice on that, you know, because by grace we all go. Um, I would really encourage people to not throw the baby out with the baptism water. <laughs> and what I mean by that, <laughs> you know, Christians are humans too. And, um, we disappoint each other and we fall short all the time. And, you know, we talk about all sorts of things, divorce rates and whatever being just as horrible among Christians, all these ways that we tremendously hurt each other. And sometimes the pain is even worse because we think, Oh, we should be answering to a higher bar. You know, there's a lot of hurt and dissension among Christians as well. Um, but to have to protect that initial first commandment between yourself and God to really protect it. Um, to guard our hearts, um, you know, as, as Milton says, to have the upright heart and pure, guarding our hearts, being having that um, protection of our hearts, I used to think was really naive and innocent, but there's actually, it takes a lot of work um, cultivating an upright heart and protecting it and protecting that inner garden so that even it, when other people hurt or disappoint us, regardless of their, their faith, or lack of faith, our first and primary relationship with God is there. Um, it's nurtured. We have that line of communication open with him. He is Emmanuel with us. He understands that hurt. He's held it himself. He's, he's born it himself. And he's also born those same joys and things too. And to just really cultivate that first relationship, because that's what a personal relationship is. It's something that it's actually a great relief. You're not responsible for anyone else. And sometimes that's actually very hard. I grew up in a very codependent home and I want to be responsible for everybody. And you're not, um, you're not actually ultimately responsible um, for the other thief. You're responsible for your own heart and how you cultivate that relationship with God and how you treat and answer to other people. And no one can take that white stone away from you. Um, no one has, no one, um, as we're told from any depth, or any place can remove his love um, for us. And so focusing on that first relationship, regardless of what else you're going through or have, you know, have been dealing with um, that you wouldn't get to a place where you just think I'm going to toss that baby out with that baptism water because, you know, it's all bad um, or it's all frustrating or no one's there. Um, regardless to keep that, um, that, that primary commandment, which is why I think it is the first commandment, uh, to love God first alive 
Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, sometimes that commandment is seen, especially by those who don't believe or even those who do, seems to be a difficult one. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's in keeping that first command where life is actually found. Mm-hmm. So th- thank you so much. Mm. Thank you, Carolyn, for your story. It's very inspiring. Oh, I love to hear someone so thoughtful, oh. so pursuing and, and intentional about the big questions of life and just to see where it led you. It led you to a place, wow, I wish I could be underneath your teaching all of the time. Oh, but I, no. I do appreciate that you have books. Sex in the City of God, I can't wait to read it all. Thank you again, <laughs> Carolyn, for joining oh. us today. Thank you so much, Jana. I appreciate you too so dearly. And I think mutual admiration is a foretaste of heaven. So praise him. That's wonderful. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks for tuning in to the Side B Podcast to hear Carolyn's story. If you're interested in finding out more about Carolyn and her work, I've included her website in the episode notes. For questions and feedback about this episode, you can reach me by email at the Side B Podcast at cslewisinstitute.org. If you enjoy it, subscribe and share this new podcast with your friends and social network. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll be listening to the other side. <laughs>